You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. If there's one thing I've learned from television, it's that you should never trust a genie. It doesn't matter how you spend your three wishes. The genie will always find some way to screw you. If you wish for a million dollars, it'll come in the form of a life insurance claim after your wife dies in a plane crash. If you wish for fame, a mob of fans will trample you to death. I thought you said you wanted money, the genie will say, a smirk on his smug genie face. I thought you said you wanted fame. Not like this, you'll scream. Not like this. And the genie will laugh at you. His muscled blue arms folded self-righteously at his chest. When I was 10, I saw an episode of The Twilight Zone about a shopkeeper who discovered a genie. When he wished for power, he was immediately transformed into Hitler. That seemed a little unfair to me, even by genie standards. But of course, I placed the blame squarely on the shopkeeper. He shouldn't have wished for something so selfish and petty. He should have been content with his humble shopkeeper's existence. He should have remembered all the cautionary tales he had read as a boy about genies and their treachery, and when he spotted that golden lamp and rubbed its smooth, sleek surface... When he smelled that purple smoke and heard that booming voice, he should have just thrown it away. That was easy for me to say. At the time, I had never met a genie. Simon Rich was the editor-in-chief of the Harvard Lampoon, and now he's a writer for Saturday Night Live. He's the author of Ant Farm and Free Range Chickens. His new novel is Elliot Allagash. Thank you for joining me, Simon. Thanks for having me. Looks like your Harvard education came in good again. Uh, Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) I mean, I mean, most of my peers have gone off to do something worthwhile with their lives, like be doctors or, uh, you know, uh, Greenpeace advocates. But uh, if if writing fiction counts as making good, then I'll take it. <laughs> well, you even uh, the Harvard application process even plays a part in this novel, doesn't it? That is true. Yeah, the novel is it's about a evil, tyrannical, fantastically wealthy monster named Elliot and. He's been kicked out of every high school in the world, every reputable school, and now he's stuck at a mid-range private school in New York, and this time he can't get kicked out no matter how evil he is because his dad's just given the school too much cash. And so uh, he's bored, and so to occupy his time, he decides he'll take the least popular, least impressive kid in the school, this uh, this sap named Seymour, and use his cash and wiles to to make him the big man on campus. And, and one of the things he does is he, he tries to get him into Harvard. One of the things that makes this novel so amazing is your is your prose voice. Um, Seymour tells the story, and it's just a really beautifully controlled. I'd say this book is really steeped in minimalism, and I'm wondering if you were actually educated in that, or if that was just a byproduct of choosing Seymour to tell the story. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the reason why Seymour tells the story. Uh, is it's really just me ripping off Arthur Conan Doyle. And, uh, you know, <laughs> those, those stories are, you know, they're, people, the story's called Sherlock Holmes. You know, that's, it's, it, Sherlock Holmes' name is always in the title. It's never Watson, you know, but uh, you need that kind of level-headed narrator in order to, to make Sherlock Holmes' voice more visceral by comparison. So I knew I didn't want Elliot telling the story. I wanted somebody who was very close to Elliot telling the story, but it's definitely Elliot's book, and that's why he gets the title. <laughs> One of the things that uh, impressed me about this book was the 
the really subtle characterizations that you have here that, that drive the story um, between Seymour and Elliot. And, and again, I, let's get back to that prose. When, when you started telling this, did you just stumble onto Seymour's voice or did you th conceive of Elliot first and then say, well, I can't, I, as you said, you can't tell the story in his voice. Talk about creating Seymour to tell the story. Well, I, I definitely created Elliot first. The way I came up with the characters, I was I was reading a book about Ivan the Terrible when I was in school, in college, and uh, I became obsessed with him. How how young and precocious he was when he started committing his horrible murders, and I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to write a book about Ivan the Terrible? Uh, I didn't want to do any research, so a historical novel was out, and uh, <laughs> and so I decided to uh, set it in in, uh, in the world I knew, which was which was contemporary New York City. And uh, when I was first starting out, I, I wrote a lot of monologues just in Elliot's voice, just to see what he what he sounded like. And he had such a loud, bombastic, crazy voice. And I was like, I, "There's no way this could sustain a whole novel. It's it's it, it's like having the radio on ten. You know, at a certain point, you have to turn it off." So I thought, "Who's going to tell this story?" And um, I, I kind of just worked backwards from Elliot. I, I wanted someone who whose frame of reference was completely normal. And uh, who was relatable and sympathetic, uh, and and I figured that would that would give me um, that would give me a a baseline by which the reader could measure Eliot's insanity. Eliot is such a, a fascinating and multi-layered character. Both these characters are are very subtly conceived, yet they are kind of revealed in broad strokes. And I'm like to just talk to you a little bit about the actual process. So you had these chunks of pieces by Elliot speaking. Mm -hmm. um, and then you decided you had to step back and create Seymour. Yeah. Now, um, did you know how much of the plot of the book did you know in advance? Or, or how, how much of this just came... It, came off the tip of your pen because one of the things that makes it so much fun to read is when you read it it just reads like you just sat down and wrote it perfectly the first time out. <laughs> well I assure you I did not uh, <laughs> I went through tons of drafts and and uh, the reason uh, a big thing about the novel is even though it, it does have a really traditional three-act structure uh, it's pretty episodic and I think uh Again, that's just me trying to rip off my heroes, you know, Conan Doyle, but also, of course, Evelyn Waugh or P.G. Woodhouse or Roald Dahl. When you read their books, there's usually a uh, central character who who is gripping on some level emotionally or psychologically. Then it's episodic, and that and and that allows you basically to cut chunks if they don't work. You know, if you look at Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Uh, there's so many scenes which are fantastic but could be eliminated entirely and the plot would still function. And and I, I realized when I was trying to attempt a novel for the first time after writing all these short pieces for years that I wanted to create a situation where it was a nonstop thrill ride where every scene worked. And to do that, I knew I'd have to write a lot of scenes and pick the best ones. So I, 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 I made sure that it was episodic. So that way... Uh, I could cut the bad chapters and it would still make sense. <laughs> and that's what happened. So yeah, there's another, you know, th this book is a few hundred pages, but yeah, there are hundreds and hundreds of pages that, that don't work, but, uh, you know, were replaced by better scenes. Well, that's a really interesting technique. So um, it does kind of, one of the things I like is that 
the, the episodic nature makes it really easy to read. There's kind of like these little blackout sketches that that happen, and, and yet we have this kind of pull as to what what where things are going. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things you set up very early on is this idea of Elliot as a as a genie. Yeah. And, and so talk about that creation of a kind of a modern version, yet another version of the old Twilight Zone, uh, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's an old story. It's, it's one I've always loved. Uh, it, uh, everything from, you know, Twilight Zone to Dr. Faustus to Damn Yankees, it's the same story and over and over again, you know. Uh, do you pick up the lamp and rub it? And, 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 what, and what do you lose by doing that? And uh, one of the things I, I, when I was trying to, like I said, craft these chapters I, uh, and write these adventures is uh, I made a list of all the things that money could buy. Which really? is yeah, which is a long list, and I guess so, and that's uh, and that's one of the ways that that's one of the and I put that list on my wall and I use that to brainstorm uh, what kind of madcap adventures Elliot could have with with Seymour and and I made a you know a list uh, and it it included everything from simple things like clothes to more complicated things like popularity or uh, cultural sophistication or social status or even or even things like uh, sex and power. And so I made this long list of all the things that money could buy. And then it was just, well, I have to create a character that has none of these things. And then another character who says, I can get them for you. And that's kind of the pull of the book. Um, and uh, yeah, it's, it's not an original story. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's Pygmalion. It's, uh, it's, like I said, it's damn Yankees is probably what it's modeled most closely after. But it was it was really fun to kind of update that Aladdin style fairy tale for a for a contemporary audience. It's a really great evocation of that kind of uh, myth, and one of the things that I, I really really like about it is just the way you start bring us into Seymour's life because Seymour is kind of both spoiled and protected, and one of the things that he does is that he lies to himself about stuff and, right. and he doesn't really admit it. And I think that the way you capture um, kids and, and teenagers is really, it's really affecting because you, when you write a book like this, I think you run the risk of alienating your reader. But mm. we love all these characters. Thank you. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Um, that was definitely my goal. Uh, even with Elliot, who's such a monster, mm-hmm. I, I, I wanted him to ultimately be likable on some level or at the very least relatable Mm -hmm. uh villains that are just terrifying and crazy it's hard to focus on them for too long because um they start to get repetitive and they're if they're two-dimensional they they stop being interesting all my favorite villains uh do have a real sense of humanity Mm -hmm. but uh yeah with with uh seymour the protagonist i thought it was also it, it was really important just as with Elliot, to, to establish his humanity, it was important to show that Seymour <clears throat> that Seymour is capable of being craven and, and selfish, uh, even even if it's un, <laughs> even if it's unwitting, uh, because uh, if he was too perfect and too good, then then well, obviously he never would have decided to befriend Elliot. Now you you also do a good job of creating kind of the tensions and, and the atmosphere of schools and, and private schools, and I'm guessing this is based on some of your own experiences. Did you attend some of these kind of private academies? 
Yes, although uh, I don't know how autobiographical the book is. Of course, writers never never know. Um, I think that the reason why I, I wanted to set it in, in, in high school is because uh, it's a time when every kid thinks that what they are doing is important. It's, a, <laughs> it's, it, it's not actually a high-stakes time, but, but it feels like a high-stakes time. And so I wanted to, uh, and it's also self-contained. You know, the, there's a reason why, uh, why, like, like I said, like Raw Dahl will set a whole book in a single factory, or you know, Evelyn Waugh will set a whole book in in a school. It's it's because, uh, or you know, Woodhouse will set a, a book in a in a single mansion. It, when there's when there's a a single setting for a novel with its own contained set of rules, it's really fun as a as a as a comedy writer because then you can create a character who's trying to break those rules. And so it's it's good to it, it, when you're gonna, especially when you're going to have a villain, it's really fun to put them in a place where there are rules so that the villain can break them. And, and uh, Elliot really does a great job of breaking the rules. And one of the things that is really interesting about this book is the uh, amazing cons and scams and elaborate schemes you come up with. You one-up yourself successfully one after another you just as a reader you just keep going well how can he top this <laughs> and you manage to do it every time Thanks. And i'm wondering you know it seems like this must have required a bit of research into uh con games and and that kind of thing yeah yeah i did a whole lot of research on con artists and uh and elliot is is a yeah he's he's a true uh he's a true con man but the difference is he has unlimited resources so uh, his 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 sabotages are, you know. At one point, he compares himself to Joe Kennedy, uh, who was successfully, you know, rigged uh, his son's rise to to power on a number of, of you know mass elections. And Elliot does the same thing, but uh, for for a middle school presidential candidate. So it's it's definitely um, it, it is definitely useful to go through history and also to look up guys like Carnegie and Rockefeller and. And uh, the robber barons, and see the kind of crazy influence that they exerted over over their their societies. And, and um, one of the things I think that is interesting, both about Elliot, and you also have uh, his father is a really fascinating character, and you create their relationship very nicely. Again, here's a kid who I think is arguably really absolutely evil. There, there's, mm -hmm. He doesn't have many redeeming qualities, right? But some of the redeeming qualities you see are in this subtle relationship between him and his father and I think that's really well handled and his father is is a piece of work as well yeah <laughs> yeah the apple doesn't fall far from the tree <laughs> no. yeah Elliot's Elliot's father is uh is a true maniac uh one of the things he does is he he bought he he pays artists famous legendary artists to create masterpieces and then locks them up in a private safe so that nobody but him can ever see them forever and sometimes he destroys them so that he can be the only one who's ever seen it, uh, just for kicks. To, to research him, I had to go past the robber barons and, and really go to even more tyrannical historical figures. You know, I had to, I had to research guys like Caligula and and Nero and and and, uh, <laughs> and really, and, yeah, and <laughs> and you know, I had to go really far back in time to find out. You know somebody who could be that wicked and that and that controlling, but it's he's a guy who uses his money to exert influence on the world. But of course, the one the one thing he cares most about is his son, and he can't exert any influence on Elliot. And that's kind of the source of his of his of his day to day 
yeah, reality. There's a, there's a great uh, part in there where he, he says, mentions to, to Seymour, you know, I noticed you've been spending a lot of time with, with uh, Elliot. Tell me what it's like. And, and that's just a, one of those moments that creates a, the, gives this book the emotional re resonance that makes everything else really screamingly funny. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's, it was, it was really interesting to write about that uh, relationship. And I think that it's, it's one of those things. And, and, and Terry and Elliot are both characters who have almost everything. And, uh, the one thing they don't have is successful relationships. And so, uh, in order to emphasize how, uh, how lacking they were in that department, I wanted to show how not lacking they are in every other department. You know? And to show that even though they literally do have every single thing on earth, this one thing is, is powerful enough uh, for the, uh, to make a, an effect on them. And, and uh, I guess emotion was, on, was not on the list of things that money could buy. Right, that was not on the list. <laughs> and uh, Seymour even observes that, that Elliot knows this, can do all this stuff, can tell all these things, but he can never tell what Seymour is thinking or feeling. Yeah. And, and that's, one, again, one of these kind of observations that give this book a real richness. Now, I want to just step back a little bit and just talk about the prose because, again, the prose is so stripped down and so clean. You can just read this book literally in a day or, you know, without one sitting. And, and I think most people are going to be likely to do so because it's a very compulsive and very funny book. So uh, did this prose come out that way off the top of your pen or did you have to, like, did you write all you I guess you had lots and lots of scenes and you stripped a bunch of scenes out or was what's left pretty good much good the way it was or did you have to redo that more too I, I wish no I had to strip everything down you know it's my goal my goal as a, as a writer more than anything is just to write something that people will, will finish voluntarily that's really <laughs> that's really my only goal so uh if I if I have a a chapter that's 3,000 words then and I can get it to 2,000 words by stripping away extraneous adverbs and you know descriptive sentences. I'm, I'm going to do it because the odds of somebody finishing a 2,000-word chapter is a lot higher than a 3,000-word chapter. And so it's, it's really my, my main goal in writing is, is, like you said, to make the prose as clean and simple and taut as possible. The last thing I want to do is, is waste anybody's time. Well, nobody's time is wasted. This, this is one of the things that uh, interests me about books. I find books... I'm interested in books that are worth my valuable reading time. Yeah. When you sit down to read a book, you're investing time. Yeah. And you want to you want it to last beyond the reading of the book. That's what I think makes reading so much richer than watching a movie or anything else because you when you invest the time in the reading, mm -hmm. um, it pays you back. And I can go back and visit these scenes in this book as if they were memories of things that I'd actually done. Right. Because I had to invest the, the mental horsepower to create those things. And one of the things that your prose does is makes it easier for us to do that. Thanks. That's really nice of you to say. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm incredibly grateful that anybody is willing to sit down with one of my books, and I feel like uh, I, I really want to live up to my end of the bargain. If somebody's willing to invest a whole afternoon reading one of my stories, one of my novels, uh, I want to. I, I really want to make sure that it's an enjoyable, uh, exciting, interesting experience. Uh, you never want anyone to feel dissatisfied after reading something. 
Now, um, one of the things that's interesting about this book is is just the perception of people who are as amazingly wealthy and amazingly powerful as Eliot and his father. And there's one phrase that recurs often in this book, no interruptions. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, that was sort of my, that's Eliot's mantra whenever he's trying to explain one of his terrifying worldviews to Seymour or if he's or if he's outlining his next scheme or his next uh his next revenge plot uh when Seymour asks a question he'll you know he'll say no interruptions and keep going um but it was also really it's interesting to bring that up now it really was my motto for myself when I was writing you know make sure that there aren't any interruptions make sure that you're writing a novel that somebody's not going to put down and I kept saying that to myself as I was writing. If ever I got to a paragraph that seemed dull or a plot point that seemed unnecessary or even an extra word in a sentence that seemed uh, that's, that seemed unnecessary, I, uh, I would just remind myself, no interruptions, nothing, uh, no negative space, no wasted words. And uh, so it's, it's Eliot's motto, but really it's also my motto too to myself as a writer. Well, that's so interesting because I think we, we feel that kind of propulsive uh, reading experience for a book. In some ways, you know, this book doesn't have people in peril. There's no, you know, it's not like there's an asteroid hurtling towards Earth or anything. Right. But it really keeps you riveted to the page by virtue of the fact that you know everything that's going to happen is going to be, like, rippingly funny. And, <laughs> and also, uh, really interesting uh, – Beyond the no interruptions, there's this interesting uh, perception of power, mm. and that uh, Elliot and his father both have the same this exercise of power. It's not enough to win; you must destroy. On an emotional level, these characters are just incredibly controlling. I, I think it's uh, what they really want is to is is to control everybody, and they they succeed. Uh, they can they control whole networks of servants and. And uh, Elliot's father has literally bought him a school, uh, you know, to make sure that he can he can finish high school. Uh, and so they 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 do have an incredible amount of control over other people. But at the end of the day, the when when you love somebody, you can't control them because that's not what that what a loving relationship is. And so uh, I think that uh, ultimately that's that's what Elliot and Terry at least begin to learn by the end of, of the novel, if not actually learn it. <laughs> and, and two, you, real, you reveal, too, that the, this kind of uh, demonic um, interest in power, this demonic uh, necessity to wield power, also um, the, at the ultimate center of the ninth circle of the temple of hell that you create, and I want you to talk about creating a temple, it's a guy sitting in a room on a stool. Yeah. <laughs> so there's nothing there. Yeah. Well, this this is a there's there's an extremely exclusive gentleman's club within w within the world of the novel. Uh, and um, is it's, this real or based on something real? No, it's not. Uh, or maybe it is real, and they just haven't inv invited <laughs> us into it. But it's it's uh, it's it's cons it's made up of uh concentric circles sort of like the rings of saturn and and as you go towards the center circle each ring of the club is increasingly exclusive and it's it's a club that's famous not so much for the people they let in but for the people who they exclude they you know, in, in its 400 year history they've excluded uh five senators and you know presidents and kings and 
Lois and Clark, and, and they even they even exclude George Washington's son. And when when Seymour asks why, Elliot explains because his father was a farmer. So it's a really intense, really brutal club, and there's a, a mystery about what's in the center circle. Um, very few people have, have you know made it past the sixth or the fifth, let alone all the way to the first. And the only person actually who has a key is the Allagashes, because uh, they're the most powerful family in New York. And uh, every ring ha- is increasingly fantastic. There's there's uh, there's incredible paintings and and in- increasingly servile servants. But at the very end, it's there's really just room for one person. And so it's it's you know it's really lonely at the top. Now, uh, you also have a really interesting story in here, and, and one of the things that this book does very well, I think, with the con stories and you know the stories of the riches, is you do a great job of including stories within stories, so that this it this is very much a story driven book. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. It's it's um one of the books that I read that I read a lot. Uh, while I was researching it, was uh, Arabian Nights, which, of course, is all stories within stories. And uh, I, I thought a lot about Scheherazade when I was when I was writing the character of Elliot, because uh, he just spins story after story after story, and I, I wanted to make sure that it had that kind of, uh, like you said, that propulsiveness, that that uh, that constant flow of of, uh, of of twists and turns. Uh, one of the stories in here is, uh, you know, you read a book like this sometimes, and in the modern age, you know, get it, you'll get part way through, it and you go, "Oh my God, I've got to look that up on Wikipedia and see is, is that real?" <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Uh, uh, when you like were making some of this stuff up, uh, th- there's a particular story I don't want to reveal it because we'll let the reader discover it. But I mean, when you're out there and you're as a, as a writer and you're thinking, "What can I make up?" and do you kind of anticipate that your readers are going to try to look stuff up? That you're writing, say, well, wait, is that club real? Is could could this guy really have done that? Is there something that really like that that happened? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I don't know. I, I I guess I don't really think about that when I'm writing it, but I I I, I do it all the time. I'm constantly Wikipedia searching everything that I read. So, so I'm sure people do that with my books too. Yeah. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, that is just an example that would that is a, a perfect example of why you're a good storyteller because you write with such authority and when you um uh create some of these like little subtales i guess not just the uh the cons and stuff but um some of the stories of, of the people's lives and and how they you know got their money and such right um when you do that do you um like go back and reread it and say, you know, this has to be more convincing. This has to be more, you know, really. Uh, do you like look at other? Were you looking at the Rockefellers' rise and saying this has to be kind of more like the Rockefellers? This has to be more like that. Oh yeah, all the time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, uh, I'm yeah. I'm constantly, like I said, constantly replacing whole chunks uh, of novels just to make sure that it's. It's as uh, suspenseful as possible, and, and and as as fun and as fun as possible. Usually, you know if something uh, is working if it's fun to write. Uh, the moment you start to realize that it, it feels like work and it's not fun, then you realize probably the last chapter you've spent the month on is is worthless, and it's time to scrap it and start again. Because if it's not fun to write, how could it possibly be fun to read? Uh, one of the things too, there's you know an interesting morality in this book. 
um, with regards to uh, when you're running all these scams and telling all these lies, eventually perhaps it turns out that maybe it's easier to just really do something than to just pretend you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that's funny. Yeah, I, you know, it's. It, I always try not to 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 moralize any of my books, and I, I the last thing I want to do is is teach anybody anything with anything I write. Like I said, I really just want them to be entertained. But uh, I think one thing that Elliot, uh, well, Elliot never learns this, but maybe one thing that Seymour learns about Elliot is that a lot of times it's much harder to cheat than to just do it right. <laughs> but Elliot doesn't. Elliot doesn't cheat because. Uh, he wants to save himself work. He he cheats because he wants. Uh, he he doesn't like being told what to do, and uh, I think it, it's more fun for Elliot to cheat, and that's why he does it. Well, you know, the world of the these hyper rich people is convincingly portrayed, and I'm wondering how many hyper rich people you talk to or know. I mean, you you uh, have you you're working with Saturday Night Live. I mean, you're, you're not running with the, uh, with the grocery checker crowd, I'm guessing. So, <laughs> Well, at, at Harvard, they're definitely, they're definitely, you know, I definitely met some members of royal families and I, and I met some extravagantly wealthy people. But uh, uh, it's hard to say uh, how much Elliot is based on, on any real people that I met. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that, I think that, uh, Everybody has qualities that that Elliot has. I think that that kind of selfishness and greed and pettiness and uh, and rage uh, and entitlement and ego egotism. I feel like everybody has that to a certain degree. And so when I was writing Elliot, I, I wasn't really modeling him after a specific person I had met. Uh, although I've certainly met people who have similarities to him, it was really just trying to create a character that uh, had all of the worst traits in myself and in my friends and just ex and, and, and none of the positive ones. You know, just, just uh, I, I, often when you're writing, you try to, especially if you're writing like a first-person autobiographical story, you try to put forth the, the best parts of yourself to make, to make, to make yourself likable. And, and when you're writing a villain, I think a lot of it is just about putting forth the very worst parts of yourself. That, that sounds like a, it's kind of fun, and that's one that I think that comes up across in the novel, that when you can like let the worst parts of yourself uh, take control and run free, yeah, that's like fun, and that and we and that comes across in the prose and in the verve and the characterization and the plot as well. Yeah, and and, and similarly, like the way Elliot speaks, it, it's completely different. <laughs> it's completely different than the way than the way I speak, and it's completely different than the way I like to write. Uh, He's the most flamboyant, stylistically crazy writer in the world. His letters within within a novel are are full of unnecessary adverbs. They're they're long. They're verbose. They're hysterical. And so, um, like like you like you pointed out, when I'm writing prose, it's very measured. It's very. I try to keep it as clean and tight as possible. But uh, you know, when you're writing in Elliot's voice, you don't have to do that. Now, uh, you also write for you know, Saturday Night Live, and I think that a lot of that kind of economy and the, the sketch consciousness, we see that kind of play out in here as well. And I'm wondering, 
how much of this, you know, you kind of saw as sketches and, and did any of these little, did any of your snipped bits end up on Saturday Night Live? Oh, that's interesting. Um, well, no, no, but, but I think that because tonally it's a pretty different novel than, than the comedy on SNL, mm-hmm. but I think that you're right to, you're right that the, the economy of, of the novel, you know, is, is something that was informed by the economy of that show. I think that I, I, I learned a lot about the economy of language from SNL when, when you only have three and a half minutes to set up and tell an entire scene. Uh, I think that made a huge impression on me and um, taught me how to, how to show things visually, to cut to the chase, you know, to, to minimize dialogue, to set things up as rapidly as possible. I think all those skills that SNL taught me really helped me write the novel for sure, even if tonally and uh, emotionally it's a different type of different type of comedy than than on tv it's it's uh i definitely learned a lot from snl well i i also really thought that uh the the feel of the comedy in this is it has it really um derives so much from the pleasure of reading your prose and there's this kind of a very laconic feel to it that um it's funny because it's so dialed back and, and also you really do a good job of capturing and I think this is part of your characterization of the way the characters capture that um, tilt between adulthood, the importance of adulthood, the complete frivolousness of childhood. Elliot has this amazing amount of money which gives him essentially unlimited power. Seymour has zip and no power so you do a great job of nuancing the characters and the characters are very complicated i think for how simple the prose reads yeah well the the more complicated the prose is the the harder it is to have complicated characters you know i I think (laughs) you know at the end of the day you really just want your words not to get in the way of your story or or at least that's my goal uh and I, i i feel like when there's simple prose, it's not distracting. It's one less it's it, it's one less thing for the reader to worry about, and and then maybe they'll be patient enough to to go with you uh, down uh, down strange avenues. This book is being adapted into a movie, uh, and, and I'd like you to talk. Do you know how much has the script screenplay been written? Are you working on it, or how yeah, I, I, I'm writing the script now. Oh, really? cool so how how is it to adapt your own work i mean this is a it reads like a movie to me i would describe this as maybe john hughes does pygmalion in the 21st century yeah but um that said it doesn't seem like it'd be a particularly easy book to adapt or is it well uh it's interesting it's i think a lot of writers don't like to adapt their own books Mm -hmm. um but it's been so long since i wrote this one uh, I I wrote it about four years ago, so um, so now adapting it, it it's not it's not that difficult because uh, obviously I've had to, I've had to change many things, but you always do when you're switching mediums. But uh, it, it's not as precious as it as it used to be to me because I wrote it so <laughs> long ago. So it's much easier to cut you know cut characters and change scenes. And uh, when when it was written four years ago, I mean we change so much as people it feels like a different person wrote the book oh interesting yeah because it, it's a, it is yeah it does feels like you can really adapt it from from a with the the perspective needed now um do you as a as a writer 
um, you're used to. We were just talking about, you know, you work on, on SNL. So there's a, a, obviously a lot of, uh, in this, when you're doing the screenplay, you can talk, create a lot of visual humor. Right. And, you know, there's, I'm trying to think, I don't think there's necessarily a lot of visual humor in the book. So Yeah, well, in, in fact, it's the opposite. A lot of, a lot of the scams are, like you were saying earlier, um, one chapter is just Seymour's Harvard application, which is, uh, which is just full of lies and, and, and grandiose claims, and, and Elliot ha- has written every word. And uh, it's, it's an entire chapter that really plays off of an existing literary format, the, mm-hmm. the college application. And so, obviously, that kind of a device can't be used in film. You can't have a you know you can't have a you can't have a scene in, in in a in a film that's based on on a written document. So so there's it's been interesting trying to figure out ways uh, to uh, visualize some of the some of the conceits. Uh, and also too, just in terms of the uh, the overall structure, the book is kind of a very nice loose feel. It's kind of uh, ambling. We really I really like reading it you can kind of roam around in it and films aren't aren't going to allow you that or or how are you going to approach that yeah that's a really good point um films need to be very linear very taut there's a pretty firm three-act structure that you can't really budge from uh but i uh, i kind of like that i sometimes it's fun to write within within those constraints or within any constraints uh and yeah, a lot of people. A lot of people say that they're surprised by how much their books change when they when they become scripts. But I'm actually surprised by how much it stayed the same. Wow. Obviously, it's very different, and I I don't want to give too much away. Uh, and you know, there are enormous differences, but uh, d- emotionally, it's it's the same. And and the character of Elliot is as bad as ever. So so don't worry about that. He's not getting sweetened for Hollywood. Oh, good. <laughs> And uh, when, as you write this, film is also a collaborative medium. I mean, you know, you got to sit, as you said, your your mantra, no interruptions. Right. Film is essentially all interruptions because presumably you've got people saying it's got to be this, this. You've got a director who might just, you know, tweeze all this. You're going to have mm-hmm. actors who may change, you know, yeah. by reading lines. So talk about writing with all interruptions. It's very different, uh, and and you know, it's if there's another thing that SNL has taught me is that sometimes it makes your work a lot better when there are interruptions. I mean, uh, I I don't I don't have all the answers. I'm, I feel like most of the stuff I write is terrible and makes no sense. Uh, that stuff is never published, thank goodness. But uh, it's it's great to to have the opportunity to work with talented people, people like Jason Reitman, who who um, put their own stamp on it, and uh, sometimes. It, it, it makes it different than what you wanted it to be, but sometimes that's a good thing. Uh, I'll always write novels because sometimes you really want to be the final arbiter of every single word. But uh, I don't think I would want to do it full-time because I feel like working with other people makes me makes me a better writer for sure because I'm learning about other perspectives and, and, and learning from other people's talents. But, uh, yeah, and also sometimes it just makes the thing better if somebody else has a better idea. <laughs> Well, you know, um, two. Here's a book. I think I, I have they thought about turning this into a video game. 
Uh, not that I know of. <laughs> well, because I'm curious, because you have a great core story. It's, right. It's based, it's based on uh, essentially an ancient myth that goes back to one of the greatest works ever written, seminal work of literature, you know, Scheherazade. Yeah. And that, that tradition has carried on and generated, again, so many great works of literature. And here's another one. I think really this is a very fine piece of writing. I think the writing is just so pristine and so pure. It's really quite amazing. But I'm wondering how you see this story that you have of these two characters and their relationships in this world and in this day playing out in the different mediums. You've talked a little bit about the film. I mean, as you're writing this, you're, you've got to be thinking that, you know, there are two actors who are going to inhabit this roles. Right. How much superstructure do you provide? How many steps are the ladder rungs? Thick, thin? Is it just a rope with knots in it that you're right. giving them? Right, right, right. So talk about you know spinning your story out into different mediums. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Uh, I I um I love when things go from one medium to another because they all you know they all have their strengths and drawbacks. Uh, they're the the biggest advantage I think of mediums like video games or movies uh, is that you can use music, which I think is the most probably the most important aspect of video games or movies feel like the composer really is king in those genres way more important than the the writers uh the programmers the directors the actors i feel like music tells the story more than anything else and uh i think when you score something it's 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 shocking how how different it is if you watch edward scissorhands without elfman's score it it's just bonkers it, it doesn't really make sense um as much as i you know love burden and i love Depp, and i think everybody involved in that movie is 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 brilliant it's really it's I, I consider that elfman's movie so i feel like that's the big tool when i'm writing novels uh that i that i miss from other mediums i think man i wish i wish i could score this do you listen to music when you write i do yeah i listen to a lot of music when i write what kind of music uh it varies i i, I uh i listen to for example, what, what, did you, what were you listening to when you wrote Elliot Allagash? When I wrote Elliot Allagash, uh, let me think. Well, I listened to a lot of, uh, I listened to a lot of Beatles songs because they're very simple and they're short, and they reminded me really of my mission statement for the book, which was just to, like I said, not waste words, not mess around, and uh, and uh, I th yeah, I think uh, popular music is a really big influence on me. Just uh, their refusal to compromise, you know, the, the fact that you're going to tell a whole story in three minutes and tell it fast and hard. I, I, always, I always admire that. Now, uh, you've, uh, we talked earlier, you're working on a, s a short story for The New Yorker. Uh, and, and I'd like you to talk about, you know, writing a short story, sending it off to The New Yorker and getting a, a happy reply and just working within that kind of format. They're really, they're, in my experience, they're just, they're wonderful with their writers, uh, or at least they're wonderful with me. I feel like they, they always try to, to make the piece better. They, they have a lot of line suggestions that, that really help me, you know, will occasionally have minor disagreements, but they're, they're, they're really, they're really tiny. Uh, the biggest thing is sometimes they'll, I'll, I'll write for the Shouts and Murmurs slot, which has a pretty strict, you know, word count. And my last piece for them was this story called Trade, which was about uh, 
it takes place in a world where girls can trade their boyfriends to one another, like in baseball, based on bad stats, bad relationship stats. And uh, the uh, first draft of that one was about you know, 1,600 words, and, and ultimately for it to run, I had to get it down to something like 1,200, 1,300 words. So it was, you know, it was a real process streaming, streamlining it. But ultimately, I think it became a, a better piece because, uh, like I said, you know, shorter is pretty much always better. You know, I like that idea. It's kind of a that that's a very interesting uh, uh, speculative piece of speculative fiction in in a sense. And yeah. I'm wondering how much uh, genre fiction informs what you write. I mean, the humor comedy is a genre in a sense, but yeah. there uh, there are other genres too. Yeah, well, I think I'm informed a lot by by guys like Bradbury or Stephen King, uh, but also also guys like T.C. Boyle who who I, I think write some of the best premise-driven stories ever. Um, and I love premises. I love, I love stories that are high concept and that start off with a really big, major conceit. And uh, I like novels like that. I like movies like that. I, I love The Twilight Zone. Uh, so, yeah, I think that I'm yeah, totally inf- informed by genre fiction. I, I've never written any, I've never published any science fiction or horror or uh, fantasy, but I think those, those genres are, are really exciting uh, for, the, for the freedom that it, that it allows its writers to do. Yeah. And also, too, the, the limitations. If you're writing a horror story, you know there should be something kind of gooey, icky, or scary. If you're writing a science fiction story, you better have something remotely science fictional as well. And that kind mm-hmm. of knowing that you're operating within that, you know, all of a sudden you've got a, a, good, uh, a good limitation on yourself. Yeah, totally. Uh, Simon, you're here in San Francisco, and you're doing some work for Pixar. Tell us a little bit about working for Pixar. Are you P- doing Pix- voice work? Uh, <laughs> no, I'm writing for them. Oh, good. Uh, Pixar is great. It's a wonderful company, very different than Saturday Night Live. They're, they're on a much different schedule. You know, It, it takes them sometimes uh, seven years to produce a movie. Mm-hmm. Which is which is mind boggling coming from a place like SNL where you know you put this whole show on in a week and even as a novelist, you know my next novel comes out in in May, it's almost a year from now or maybe even not till June or July next summer they tell me that seems like an eternity from now especially because I started writing it about two years ago so we're we're talking about three years for 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 a project to come out but that's not even half of how long some guys have been working on movies over at Pixar. So it's it's exciting to to see a process that's so involved and so complex, and it's really inspiring, you know. Because because think about how much these people must care about their movies if it takes them so long to make one. And, and I, this is a very collaborative process too. I'm guessing this isn't just extremely, you. extremely, yeah. And and uh, you're working with uh, talented people who have very different skills from one another. You're working with animators and with directors and story artists and uh voice actors and it's uh it's really exciting and it's 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 uh I'm really happy to be there and it uh I feel like I'm learning learning from everyone every day. Now, um are you part of a writing team or are you the 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 lead writer for this project? I'm I'm yeah, I'm helping them write a movie. Well, this sounds uh, we will definitely look forward to this. I've been speaking with Simon Rich. His new novel is Elliot Alagash. Thank you for joining me, Simon. Thanks for having me.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.